Welcome to Health Law Talk, presented by Shahardi Sherman Williams. Health law broken down through expert discussion, real client issues, and real life experiences. Breaking barriers to understanding complex healthcare issues is our job. And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, whenever you're listening to uh, the podcast here, Shahardi Sherman-Williams, Health Law Talks in the studio today, Conrad Meyer, your healthcare attorney, and Rory Bellina in the house. And we have a special guest, well, really, not really a special guest, he's always here, we just need to get him in the studio more often, George Mueller, our corporate counsel, uh, securities lawyer, uh, who done uh, a lot of deals with all of us, and really sort of the backbone of, uh, of the corporate section here at Shahardi Sherman. How y'all doing, guys? Good, good morning. Good morning. And just as the title suggests today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about uh, deals and healthcare deals. And, and really, you can apply what we're going to be discussing, I guess, George, to, to any kind of deal, because we're going to be speaking sort of in generalities. But, uh, but uh, because, of it, because it's health law, we're going to be trying to focus this on a little bit of, um, of on healthcare. So with that being said, a deal. What when you when you sit down and a client's call and they say, "Guys, I need help with a deal." What what's the first thing that pops in your mind, George? Um, I, you know, you typically want to know what they're doing, what they're what they're selling, what they're trying to buy. You know, you want to know what industry they're in. Um, you start to ask some specifics. They'll usually volunteer a lot of that, but. Uh, at some point in time, it gets down to uh, timing, price, affordability, and then you know the old Nick Saban adage comes in, you trust the process, right? And there's a process, as you alluded to earlier in the introductions, where uh, you know, deal work, to a certain degree, conforms to uh, duplication and the ability to apply your deal process to any deal. But in healthcare, I think certain specific issues emerge um, and we'll get into that some of that later um, some of that informs how you do your LOI and some of that a lot of that informs how you do your due diligence and uh, so I, I think the answer is you speak to the client you figure out what they're doing who they're buying who they're selling to mm-hmm. and kind of how they want to do the deal and I think when we talk about LOI we mean letter of intent and and for the listeners who might not know that um, and, and so I totally agree George I know there's a process Rory uh, I know you and I we get the calls sometimes and it's always I want to buy a practice I want to join a practice I want to sell my uh, my radiology facilities I want to all these different things so w- what's what say you on the healthcare deal what's going on in your mind the first time you hear that call well usually one of the first things I'll you know ask about is do you already have an LOI because in the recent history um, we've been <laughs> blessed or cursed with deals that have come to us and you get the phone call and it's a client saying guess what? I'm ready to sell the practice. I signed the LOI yesterday. I'm emailing it over to you now and I need your help. So and do you have that pit in your stomach when you hear that? Yeah, that it's a lot different of a perspective and kind of a plan than what I'd much rather get the deal, how George referenced it, where they come to you first before really doing or signing anything. But sometimes they come to us and the, and the LOI is already done sure. and you got to walk it. A, a lot of our clients who are serial entrepreneurs have a, have a tendency to 
pre-cook the deal and bring it to you. And, of course, obviously, if they're locked into an LOI, as we'll get through when we go through LOI process, um, you can really give away some big points in your deal. You can really change the complexion of how the deal goes, the allocation of risk, uh, who's paying for what. Um, I mean, it can be very open-ended. They can be very much sort of Damocles, and everyone pays all the closing costs, even if you don't close type thing, where it becomes really expensive not to close your deal. Right. And, um, you know, whether you're, depending on whether you're the buyer or the seller uh, and how that tees up, it's tough. But, yeah, they, it, one of the, certainly one of the first things you wonder is how far along are you? And you sort of you kind of cringe and hold your breath well, a little like, bit. And that's funny to your point about being the good chef, right? So, I mean, you know, a lot of those entrepreneurial uh, clients, you know, think that they that they could throw the Totino's pizza in and call it a pizza, right? Okay. So we don't want to use the lawyers. We just want to throw it in and see what comes out first. Uh, a little yeah. scary. And I've gotten LOIs that have been four pages, and then I've gotten some that are 18, 19, <laughs> 20 pages. And I think it, it's it's obviously better for us to come in on the front end before the LOI is done sure. because, you know, some LOIs, I think the main focus is how much are we going to get paid? You know, is there going to be some sort of uh, non-compete that comes along with it? Are we going to be, you know, forced employees, that kind of thing? Mm-hmm. You know, when is this going to happen? And then that's it. And there's so many more things that really should Absolutely. be in there that could, that could really make or break the deal that, you know, then we have to address with the client or the client – we have to address with buyer or seller's counsel and you know that could that could break the deal right there and 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 they've wasted kind of time and some resources on doing an LOI without talking about some really big key points sure and, and you know staging in the level of diligence and information that the client gets or has gotten about the target entity or the target buyer um, is all usually governed in the LOI but the ability to kind of just I mean, talk about basic stuff like identifying the parties, uh, the price, the price usually in those first couple of paragraphs after you've identified and defined the air quotes that the listeners can't see, transaction. Um, That price, I mean, some people just put a flat number. Well, that's a problem, right, because you've got to qualify what that number is. Uh, We've seen, depending on how informed and sophisticated the parties are relative to how they come to the deal and who else they're being advised by, uh, typically, you know, you know a deal is at least going to be guided by some sophisticated parties involved. If you see, well, it's based on a multiple of an EBITDA and that multiple looks like it's on market and that EBITDA looks like it's something that's attainable and compares with historical performance of mm-hmm. the target entity. And then with a bunch of qualifier language that says, and we get to look and see if that EBITDA is right. We look to see if that multiple still makes sense based on our diligence and that overall enterprise value. And then, you know, when buying practices and doing things, keep in mind the larger the deal, the more likely it is that rollover equity is going to come in. All, all that informs one of the first key, kings, first key things that we typically encounter, which is identify, mm-hmm. identification of the parties and determination of deal value and price. Interesting. So what I guess the, the, the question is, is and, and, and I know all three of us have experienced this, where you walk in, you get the call, LOI is already done. You get the LOI and you look at it. And the first thing you see is, you know, what I don't see. And, you know, how in your experience uh, on the table here, what do you do? 
for the client now when the LOI, when I guess the train has left the building, right? The ship has left port. How do you unwind it or how do you then, I guess, amend to get the considerations that you want in for the client to make the deal balanced or to a point where you where you feel like, okay, we're, we're getting the things we need to get in? Uh, you know, depending on the deal dynamics, that is how friendly the parties are, how well acquainted is their prior affiliation, or do, do they currently have some sort of a relationship, either professionally or are they known, mutually known, or is it just blind party that they, hey, this looks like a good acquisition target because it fits in kind of to my scope of who I'm trying to buy, right? Mm-hmm. My growth plan, if you will. Um, I think what you try to do is either if it's vague and you want it in there, well, you know, then you call all the other deal terms you want into there, custom, customary or on market, or you suggest that uh, there are things that are in the definitive agreements and you try to get them in there. It's, oh, well, that's what we typically get. You know, you get the, you get the adage that you learn in law school is a terrible answer. Is, well, that's what everyone does. So that's what we usually get, or that's in the form, right? All these terrible things. Well, you, I guess you, to the extent you can, the theater of advocacy for your client, you try to get them. Um, I think that, what you try to do early is identify deal breakers, things that are like mm-hmm. terminal deficiencies, things that could really um, go negatively against the client's expectations about ultimate deal results. Right. You try to warn them off early and say, look, you're going to have to do a price adjustment because you're getting cleaned on this. You're getting cleaned on that. You're getting hosed on that. So you tell them early before invested costs or expectations become too high. Maybe you tell them you need to back off the deal or you need to let the LOI expire and then get a better deal, which is a rare, that doesn't happen. But typically in this circumstance, sometimes you can get the clients to discuss among themselves because attorneys have a tendency to be too adversarial and let this happen too early in the deal. And I don't, you know, it is, we do what we do for our clients, but sometimes you just got to readjust deal expectations. If the deal is too bad or too one-sided, uh, you know, in one way or another, maybe you, I don't know what Rory has done in the past. I know I've tried to say, well, look, my client wasn't advised on this LOI. This thing is terminally deficient. And, you know, this price isn't supported because the allocation of risk is totally off market. And because you know, you've got these lockup deal terms or the rollover is way too high and we're trying to cash out or whatever. Right. I mean, insert right. alternative deal result of choice enough to try to reset uh, transaction expectations. Yeah, I, if something comes to mind. This was a transaction that I worked on about maybe three, four years ago. And at, it was after the LOI was executed and we had the air quotes kickoff call <laughs> with, you know, our client, the buyers, uh, buyer, buyers counsel, everyone who had the CPAs, everyone on the phone. And what I thought would be a, you know, a 20. You let those CPAs on the phone? <laughs> they were they were invited. Uh, what you would think would be a, a twenty Did minute they talk. <laughs> they did not talk much. They okay. they kind of listened in and they would chime in if they were asked to talk. But okay. it was a what was typically a you know a twenty minute call on you know here's the overall structure. We're going to move forward with these documents. Here we're going to talk about the data room. You know which we're going to talk about in a later episode. Um, you know it, it turned into a two and a half hour call because the LOI was so deficient that. When we started to get, and it was it was really good because the deal ended up closing, and it, it took some time. But that that kickoff call was where we really discussed the big things that weren't in that L, the LOI that came to us too late, 
where we weren't a part of it. And, you know, the attorneys were able to talk and discuss, okay, well, we're thinking of structuring this way. Well, no, we wanted to structure it this way for tax implications. And so that, that first call really kind of made the deal as opposed to breaking the deal because we were able to move past some of those big points. So I think it's, you know, it, it's very helpful if, depending on what side you're on, but the, but the, I'll call it the opposing counsel, you know, if they've got the same goals in mind of we want to work this deal, we want to get it closed. I mean, I think that's, that's everyone's goal as long as it's their client's goal to, to get the deal to close. If you've got attorneys on the other side that are willing to work and not just dig in their feet and, you know, and, and put a, a halt to the deal if they don't get what they want. Yeah, no, uh, heel digging is, uh, uh, and you'll learn it early, right, in the deal. People will reveal themselves very quickly in terms of how that goes. Um, that can really kind of set the culture for how our deal goes, I've noticed. And, uh, again, getting an opportunity to get that LOI in um, is – it sounds like it's a very important, you know, oh, obviously yeah, a very can, important part. Yeah. Well, let me, let me throw this at you now. So let's, let's throw a curveball here. So what about NDAs, non-disclosure agreements? So sure. do they work synonymous, George, within the context of an LOI? Do you find them, or is it, is it after, before? It's, you know, typically it's one of the first things that you'll see exchanged on paper between parties who have expressed a mutual interest or received an interest and decided to entertain it. Uh, just because, you know, a letter of intent, if you keep in mind what information informs a letter of intent, we just talked about a laundry list of sure, things. Sure, sure. And so those things, you're talking about the identity of the seller or sellers, what they're selling, is it assets or equity, uh, rough estimate of price, so we have price parameters, and then we have a bunch of deal terms, and usually there's some allocation of risk things, there's some employee retention and what's going to go on with that. A, a lot. So imagine the amount of information it takes to inform a successfully drafted LOI. So we know a lot of information has been exchanged by the parties. So in order to facilitate that, certainly I think an NDA, non-disclosure, confidentiality, and then that can get into, depending on the nature of the business, non-duplication, non, you know, it looks like a kind of an IP protection agreement nestled mm -hmm. in a confidentiality. It's one of the first things you do to get it so that a level, and even then on the level of information that's shared at that level pre-LOI is usually... Um, kind of high level. It's not too granular. It's certainly not proprietary, um, in usually, typically. Um, but we, you have to have that in place in order for that information to be shared to facilitate the language. Yeah, and I think it's probably one of the most important things from the beginning because, like we talk about, if we're thinking of this chronologically with your LOI and then the NDA, and we'll call it the kickoff call, but, you know, after that, it's when you start to get the different, you know, parties, their attorneys or their accountants looking in things and you, you start to go into that go or no go analysis where, okay, we've agreed to basic terms on, you know, closing price, how we're going to structure it. We had our kickoff call. We kind of agree whether this is going to be assets, stock, are we going to have to do some pre pre-closing mergers, acquisitions for tax reasons. But then once we move past that, okay, now we need to start looking at you know, what's behind the curtain and really see, is this a go or no go? And that's when you get, depending on the type of the deal, the deal that comes to mind, the, uh, the firm kind of siloed it all off. And so they had their, their tax attorneys looking at the, the one side, they had their healthcare team looking at the, the healthcare side, their HR people looking at all their employee things. I mean, that's when you really start to get down into the weeds of, okay, we need to look at this and make sure that this deal is really worth what we said it, we thought it would be worth in, in the LOI. And, and, and spend some time there. And that's 
probably the last big barrier I would say you face. Mm -hmm. Once you get past that, that go or no go analysis, you know, some other things definitely will come up um, as you get into disclosures. But I think that's where a lot of time is spent deciding, okay, were we close on our mark for the purchase price? Do we still want to purchase this asset or, or, you know, acquire yeah. this? Well, the, let me, the let me gating issues of mm -hmm. suitability and, and is the price, are we seeing things that prove out the price or any big limiters? I will make a bad joke on be, on behalf or at the, at the, the expense of some healthcare attorneys. He talked about how the different anthills of the firm, the different specialties get called in. Keep in mind, for buyer's counsel, typically the healthcare regulatory people don't get wheeled out <laughs> until the last very 10 end, days very of end. the deal. So they can come they running can, and screaming that a non-compliance issue has suddenly changed. We have a full disclosure, and it's going to cost a ton of money. And... All yep. sorts of things are going to happen. That was a deal right there. Didn't that, you know that? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> that was it. And so that's literally the call you get, right? It's like, oh, healthcare counsel is fine. We're non-compliant with some. It's something that is either gray or potentially completely inert, or it's something that could be handled like it's very identifiable and, and that can be bottled up and dealt with legally and appropriately. We, we call that the difficulty bomb. I mean, that's, that's something that healthcare attorneys are very good at doing. They're very good at saying no. Mm -hmm. It's hard sure. to say the yes in healthcare. Are, and look, the compliance true. people, typically when we do compliance work, we're, we're mindful of what could be right. interpreted or what sure. could be determined because, you know, that, that is kind of the nature of people on the other end of those regulatory issues. Well, well, before before we get to the... Well, I, mean, I just wanted to say, they... Invariably, most other specialties get involved early. Yeah. Except for the healthcare regulatory people. Yeah. They're always in late. That's true. And they always have all the bad news. But right. getting back to the confidentiality, I'm sorry, I had to say that. Oh, well, that's, and look, I, I get that. And, and look, we're going we're gonna to get to the to the due diligence. We're going to get to the actual documentation and closing. Right. So, but, but first of all, let me ask you this. So I just say that, let me just say this. Here's the quote I'm going to give you All NDAs are created equally. Oh. Would you agree with that or not? No, I think they all have similar titles. They all have a similar structure. You know, you typically you get the big, uh, you get the big definition of what uh, information is or confidential information, and then you'll have the you know, the identification of it, what it includes, and then the duties to protect, and then the manners in which you have to prove that if you know things don't consummate what you do with that, like right. sign an affidavit saying you've destroyed it, show some computer information, you've deleted it, you've sent it all back, you don't retain any of it, um, et cetera, et cetera. Sometimes it's an exception where they want to retain one copy for some compliance purposes, depending on the nature of the deal. Uh, but no, they they vary. And um, you know, we've also seen, talking about what you put in one of these, we've seen some people try to put exclusivity terms and lockup terms mm -hmm. in their NDAs as a precursor to the LOI. They say, well, while we're exchanging information, you agree not to entertain any other candidates. Right. right. And so that that's pretty aggressive. And, and we try to avoid those it being imposed on and, our clients. And but. so and this one, when the other counsel says, George, Rory, to either one of you, uh, when the other counsel says, hey, guys, I have my NDA. It's, a, it's really kind of simple, you know, a couple of pages here. I'm going to send it to you. Not a big deal. It's a form NDA, right? Does the uh, does the hair go up on your neck or the antenna wave and say, well, let's just check it out first? Or what, what's typical? I mean, I think it's always good to check it out and, and see what's in there. I mean, I would never just tell someone to sign off on anything without 
you know, putting eyes on it. Like George said, I think there's common language, you know, defining what's information, defining what's confidential information, defining what is in in the public because there's right. exceptions if, you know, you're subpoenaed for information or what's public information, indemnification language. I mean, I think there's some key points that you definitely want to see in an NDA. Um, and, and like George said, that exclusivity provision where, you know, during the term of this LOI or whatever it may be, that, uh, that we're not going to, you know, solicit other buyers or sellers of the company. So I think there's definitely big, important things. And, and uh, the good thing, I guess, you know, with the progression of time and technology is that, you know, when you're going through this go or no-go process, these, these data rooms are really sophisticated and they're really secure. And they really, depending on what side you are and if you set it up or not, they allow you to see you know, who opened the file, what time they opened it, how long did they look at it, did they attempt to print it, did they attempt to download it? I mean, there's some really, you know, big sophisticated audit type in, of work. Right, right. Right. I mean, you could even turn off features where documents can only be viewed, they can't be downloaded, they can't be printed. So <laughs> all those things really do, right. the right. software out there really does help because, you know, we're, we're not getting into the disclosure and due diligence part yet, but when you're in that go or no go analysis and everything's confidential, you know, the data room and these data room companies can really help. Well, let's go back. So for the, for the listeners who've never seen or maybe read an NDA before, George, I think you touched on it a little bit about what's considered confidential, talked about a few sections. Yeah, what, what, what would you normally see in an in, in NDA aside from the fact of here's what's confidential? Yeah, so, and depending on the, industry or, you know, if it's a healthcare deal, we're talking, things get a little different. Um, and then it gets different as to whether or not this is kind of a, someone entering into an industry or whether it's like a vertical integration from who would be a, a buyer or seller or consumer user or solicitor of the services involved or whether or not they're competitors, right? Because, and to, if you're making widgets and you have super secret recipes and processes, those things usually don't even get uh, disclosed until the very end, if at all. And, they're heavily protected in terms of you can't reverse engineer, you can't duplicate, and you can't compete. Uh, in a scenario with healthcare, I think a lot of the information ends up being either protected in terms of the terms of agreements, right, and, and or terms of your employee agreements, or maybe other proprietary processes within the healthcare sphere. I understand that, so it's like, well, what's proprietary? You know, people have some business processes, some billing processes, right. and some other things that they believe are proprietary. So. Those carve-outs that go usually A through E or A through F in terms of uh, what isn't protected information or proprietary, I think that gets a little gray because uh, whether or not something is out there, whether or not it's independently learned, or whether or not it's something they're already doing but they do a little different, I think that can get gray and concerning in healthcare transactions, obviously the sensitivity of some of the information. Usually it's what provided in an anonymous or redacted scenario where things can be identified for purposes of determining uh, patient populations or pay or mix and whatnot. Uh, I think there are ways that that stuff sure. typically gets provided to where you don't have someone's social security number and or name or, or air quotes PHI out sure. there. Right. Uh, and that's so you, I don't know. I'm sorry. Go ahead. <clears throat> no, I'm just going to say, so with that, I think defining confidential is important and the, the, the duty to protect and then, or, you know, the exceptions about whether or not. What about who can see it? Well, it, is that is that typically, typically enumerated yeah, out? It's going to be it's going to be certain people. You can make it as fine and, and as tight as you want. Almost certainly, as you said, who's on the 
when the LOI calls to be the same people who get to see that stuff, which will be uh, attorneys and CPAs and other advisors, uh, employees. They probably don't want it to be widely published. And, of course, the duty to indemnify if the stuff gets out, right, for one reason or another. Yeah. You have a, 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 a rogue employee that goes and posts a bunch of stuff on the Internet. I mean, a parade of horrors doesn't usually happen, but you have to consider the scenario. And so if you're someone who's disclosing, you know, mm-hmm. Some of these scenarios, you have to also contemplate who's doing the disclosing. Is it mutual or is it kind of heavily one-sided? You're talking about the, the indemnification? Later? Yeah, then who's gonna, who's more likely to access that indemnification, those protections? And depending on who you represent, you have to kind of, you know, curate those accordingly. If and, yeah, and I was going to say this is not, this will probably not give much comfort, but I think there's a level of trust a little bit in the, the company that's either acquiring you or that, you know, that you're, you're selling because knock on wood, I haven't been a part of a deal that didn't go through, that didn't make it to the finish line, but you're it disclosing, happened. you're disclosing a, a lot of information you're disclosing, you know, in, you know, when you're putting all that stuff in the data room, you're giving out your patient lists, your patient populations, you know, revenue, you're disclosing your payer contracts, which are, you know, those are sacred because everyone's got different <laughs> everyone's rates. Everyone's got a different deal. Everyone's right. got a different deal. You know, how, how much are you paying for this? You're disclosing your vendor rates, right. how much you're buying your sutures for. And, and I mean, you're, you're disclosing a lot of information and could the deal blow up? Absolutely. And, and you and can't hit rewind on it. You can correct. tell them to hit delete. You can tell them to return to sender. Correct. You can tell them to guarantee that it's not going to go anywhere. Yeah, but, but, out there, but the, all, the all that being said, gonna, though, they know, they right. know, and they have it. So there's a little bit of a, of a of a gut trust of, do you trust that this is going to go through? Are you okay with, you know, your the acquiring company, your competitor, maybe knowing what your what your Blue Cross rate is or what the, you're paying? The push in on that is big. That's and that's really. That's well stated, Rory. It's it's a it is a moment where you're like, man. Okay, well, look, here we go. hey guys, I'm all for the trust tree, but let me just ask the question: If it's not in writing, it doesn't happen. So that that's sort of the typical mantra that we all have followed, right? Sure. Um, my question, and, and to you, Rory, is if on that note, that trust you're talking about, I mean, would it be better? to actually enumerate in the NDA what those disclosures are and who they're supposed to go to and its limitations. I mean, wouldn't it be nice? Would, does that, do you see that typically? I think you could do that. I don't, I haven't seen that where it's, you know, disclosed down that much. I think it's, it's non-disclosures are typically between the, the, the buying entity and the selling entity. And it kind of covers representatives like, like George mentioned, the attorneys, the advisors, the accountants. I don't think it's, detailed down into who can or can't see this. I think that that might be. What about the relief valve though? Like the courts, a court order, a court ordered issue, George, or like, what about that? Typically some of the uh, language will imply that anyone who's not under the tent of the entity, the disclosed, you know, the disclosed, the recipient of the information has to have, has to impute to them or get an agreement or get it in writing that any other advisor has that duty to Keep that that con- they still fall under that NDA. It, that they agree to abide by the terms right. of the NDA. Got it. Okay. And so the company ends up standing behind the other, you know, their their representatives being disclosed. They stand behind them in, in performing that. And and so to your point about what happens if it's court ordered to disclose some information. I mean, is, but is there is there some sort of a, a, a relief valve that says, well, hey, if you ordered by the court or it's, if it's required by law, yeah, that's sort of a typical. You've give if, if that does happen, if you can imagine a scenario where 
I'm a seller and I disclose to a buyer. Here's all my information. And then right. uh, third party X comes in and says, we have a court order or something to get all your documents either. And they get swept up in something that has nothing to do with you or it's specific to the deal for whatever reason. Um, I think the answer is typically the, the I don't want to say boilerplate, but typically what you'd like to see in there is prompt notice and the agreement to fight it or oppose it and or give us the opportunity to fight or oppose sure. it, right? And you do that, you've done kind of all you can. So some sort of a temporary restraining order or some TRO or junction? <laughs> You're allowed to apply for one. You either tell them, when I say, you know, protect against it or fight it, I would say you certainly try to you block the order, give us an opportunity to participate and block sure. the order. And or put up, put up your kind of best defense if you don't want it out there. Um, Got it. And it's an issue, or sometimes it's just cheaper to say, okay, you can go ahead and have it. But in the next, you know, I, I know we discussed the next episode, we're going to focus more on the data room and the disclosure schedules because that'll take up a whole episode. But, you know, one thing that I just wanted and to. And an anthill of associates. Yeah. Yes, that's right. One thing I wanted to talk about uh, while we had everyone in here is you're going through that go or no go analysis and you start seeing things, and it all goes back to that purchase price on the LOI. And let's say that we are representing seller and buyer's counsel starts to go through documents and says, wait a second, these numbers don't match up with what you told us they looked like when we had that steak dinner one night. So, you know, George, what have you seen when you're in that, you're not, you're not great, really, great in, you're not really in the weeds of negotiating the, mm-hmm. the asset purchase agreement or the, the MIPA, whatever it may be based on the deal, but you're still in that go or no go before you spend a lot of time, money and resources and buyer's counsel calls you and says, these books aren't as great as my client thought they were. We're going to have to adjust down that LOI price. Yeah. You know, so uh, a couple of instances anecdotally leap into mind and certainly a couple of things happened with just background with COVID a lot of things have really taken a dip and gone into a valley and are kind of resurging out. Some others, on the other hand, like if you were in labs or testing or something, have really just shot up, right? And so the idea that you'd be selling at a time where you're at an all-time high with very steep growth is suggestive of, you know, questioning long-term sustainability of that type of value as a basis for determining a purchase price. Sure. And so I think the, the quick answer is we've seen some where you've had some kind of anomalous years and you look at it and you try to get an adjuster in there, right? You try to build in an adjustment where we'll pay X and then that's when getting into the terms of the deal later, the earnout is going to be more weighted heavily so that it trues up or you don't get caught overpaying for anomalous performance. On the other end of it, if you have historicals, but then someone says, oh, you know, these are all the ad backs. That's what we're using. You kind of take their word for it. You say, in, in the little price recipe, we have X EBITDA, X multiple for total enterprise value, and we're going to buy this percentage. You know, maybe it's 80, maybe it's 50, you know, whatever strategically works for the deal. Um, and then you start looking at the tax returns and the cash basis, financial statements, and you try to do your ad backs and get there, and you can't get to their EBITDA. Right, you don't know where is it. Where are the adjustments? Where are these normalizations that are supposed to give us this quality of earnings that proves up our price? And the answer is, you start to manage those expectations. You start to ask. Uh, I can see the emails. You, you, either you, the CPA, preferably CPA, because they're less threatening. Right, you have them 
CPA to CPA or CPA to intended party, ask, look, we need this information. Where is this information? Or you can have it directly. You just want to have lawyer to lawyer, depending on scenarios and privilege matters and whatnot. But transactionally, you try to tailor your questions and inquiries to prove up the price assumptions. And that's kind of sending the message that, hey, you know, we're looking at this or, hey, we're not seeing it. And then how you communicate that, I think, starts to manage seller expectations if you represent the buyer. Um, and it's the seller's opportunity to prove that up, to say, oh, no, look, this is why. And this is where we get it. And, you know, it proves up. So pay us our price. And, and I think we can, when we start going into the due diligence, we can get into that. Uh, but for purposes of, of – because of, what we're doing here, we're doing this multi-part series. You need it in you, the – you need to address it. The content and the LOI. The intent rather than having stuck on a price and the ability right. to modify it. Right, um, Because you may – you know, he probably gets some tax returns and financial statements in the initial data dump before the LOI. Mm-hmm. But there can be other things that inform that you may not get to until uh, a definitive agreement is there. So – but, no, it's it, – you know, that content in the LOI is very important. That's why we, you know, mentioned it earlier. Because that price thing, you've got to have the flexibility to where we have a concept of value, where we're going to prove it up. And um, yeah, and then, you know, keep in mind, in LOI, it's kind of switching gears a little bit. Usually binding and non-binding. I was right? about to it's, say that. It's, it's, a big, right. it's a big deal about and conceptualizing what will apply, what won't apply, what will survive, uh, versus kind of scratching your head about merger doctrine and having the LOI terms be merged into a definitive agreement, but yet the NDA is still applying the entire time. You have to back-reference those. You have to make sure that you have some continuity of what the legal agreement is between the parties from the NDA to the LOI into the definitive agreement. But yeah, the binding and non-binding components and, and what happens, uh, avoiding the exclusivity being jammed in the NDA, certainly in the LOI, that's usually where we find our kind of sword dangling over our head. We've had some come in where you see, they say, oh, well, if you don't close and you pay all our costs. And it's like, well, for any reason? And then so you either want to strike that or you want, you know, strike it entirely or you want to very narrowly define, very narrowly define, on what circumstances would I ever be responsible for the, if I'm a seller, for the buyer's legal costs for right. a consummated deal? And I guess if you get to a certain point, you walk off in a huff for no reason at all, something that is really kind of off market or poor form, then maybe. But otherwise, it's huge leverage for the buyer. And you want to avoid that, right? But some people insist on it. They try to get it. And they, they'll tell you, well, you know, we're just doing the best for our clients. Like, yeah, you're trying to create extraordinary leverage. But multiple levers, <laughs> multiple buttons inside of right. these LOIs that can really create deal leverage downstream, um, materiality risks, uh, materiality scrapes, all of things that go into what happens with those boilerplate reps and warranties, the posture of them, just informing uh, indemnifications in the definitive agreement. Like who's going to do indemnification? Are they going to be personal? Are they going to be pro rata? They could be joint and several amongst all sellers. Are they going to be capped? Is the cap going to be the purchase price, 10% of the purchase price? Is there going to be a holdback? How long is that holdback going to be? Is it staged out at 12 months? Did we get the typical 18 months? Uh, how fast? How soon? Because reading to the end of the book a little bit, after the deal is closed, the posture changes a whole lot in terms of examining the escrow, making claims for holdbacks, and you know, whatever, you know, if there are litigation matters going on, of course, those things have a tendency to linger and get addressed, but 
things change a lot, right, operationally. And um, so you, what we always try to advise is you will never have as much leverage as you do immediately prior to signing whatever doc, that LOI. You'll never have as much leverage as you then. And getting to the definitive agreement, yeah, it, 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 that, it, it applies. That's there. a great point. I've never seen a deal close for more than the price in the LOI. The price only can go down. Well, we've got we got to, if we're representing a seller, we got to drive up that EBITDA, but you know, hopefully, um, so I guess, I I guess the, the, the point of all that to both of your points is get counsel involved before, right? You do the LOI earlier, the better, earlier, the better. And and don't be just simply because you're a seasoned entrepreneur doesn't mean you know how to, I guess, to your point, make a pizza. (laughs) No, right. Yeah, I mean, does yeah. it, I mean, cause you, cause all of the issues that both of you have addressed today, very complex, very complex. It's very fluid. And if you don't get them, they're deal specific and they can be right. industry specific in terms of, you know, how value typically is uh, determined in a healthcare, in a healthcare setting. And then some of the regulatory issues that you have to deal with in the healthcare setting. Um, it, and the assignability of contracts in the right. healthcare setting, all that can affect price. And to the extent you can, and again, it depends on the posture, buyer or seller, to the extent you can address them and get them done in the agreement without the full-blown language, but to get the concept decided in your favor. You're covering a lot of ground very efficiently, mm-hmm. and you're getting rid of things that be, can become impasses for a deal to close. And again, it's a bad joke about our healthcare regulatory council, some of whom are present in the room, but yep. it's not on y'all. <laughs> if you can get a uh, kind of a drop dead date for certain issues to get raised, right. preferably earlier, the better, then you can avoid, again, one of those buyer-driven leverage scenarios where everything's pretty much done, it's all teed up, and then, oh, golly, gee, this rat in the woodpile, we just found this. You have any idea what we're going to have to do? Hit the brakes, full stop. Well, that that's bad for deal dynamics. And as a seller, it has a tendency to, to really put you in a leveraged scenario where you can't really say, well, I'm not doing that. We're not going to do this. The right. practical risk of this is nominal. What are we doing here? And the buyer's sitting there pointing to some regulation and then some discussion paper and then some friend that they call at some agency that gave them the unofficial interp on what should be done to remediate the issue. I think we've all seen that. And if if it's discovered in the first month of due diligence, it's fine. If it's discovered 10 days before the deal closes, it's, you know, it's bad for your buyer. Like you guys should have figured this out earlier, but they're like, Oh, we can't unring the bell. And I will, you know, avoiding that, by trying to create a drop dead date for when these things get raised, kind of not dramatically different from what you might see in a real estate purchase agreement with respect to title defects, right? You have a period of time to get those done. It's a little more difficult to try to impose that sort of deadline in, in, a, in an asset deal or an equity deal for a healthcare deal. But um, it's, I think it's an important thing to try to get done um, if you can. If you can get that address, you can pull, you can save yourself a lot of aspirin. Well, I think I think what we're going to do here, because the we'll call this the art of the legal deal, we're going to make this a, a multi-part series. I think there's too much information to go over in a single it's, podcast. It's, so, it's fun discussion. Point. It is a lot of fun discussion. So I think I think listeners really will, will benefit 
a lot from getting some of this background information. So, you know, uh, uh, George, you, you should be a regular here anyway. So we're going to, we're definitely going to have George back. Rory, uh, uh, wouldn't you agree? I think George needs to come back and shed some insight on additional deal I, issues. I, it's, it's a short walk to the studio. We've got to close out this series. The next, the next episode will focus on data room disclosure schedules, which will definitely take up a full episode. That would definitely take up a full episode. So we look forward and, to that. And we're going to need a bigger room to invite all the associates <laughs> in to help with it. There's a lot of associates that go into that. Well, gentlemen, I want to tell you, thank you very much. It's been an honor and a pleasure working with you. And uh, everyone uh, who has listened to the show, we really appreciate uh, the the interest in the podcast. Uh, Go ahead and and click that that five-star rating for us, if you don't mind. And if you like what you hear or you want to comment or you have any requests with respect to uh, future episodes, please go ahead and send us an email. I think it's uh, podcast at shahardi.com is the email address. And until that time, we look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Have a great weekend. Enjoy. Thanks for listening to this episode of Health Law Talk presented by Shahardi Sherman Williams. Please be sure to subscribe to our channel Make sure to give us that five-star rating and share with your friends. Shahardi Sherman-Williams is providing this podcast as a public service. This podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal advice, nor does this podcast establish an attorney-client relationship. Reference to any specific product or entity does not count as an endorsement or recommendation by Shahardi Sherman-Williams. The views expressed by guests on the show are their own, and their appearance does not imply an endorsement of them or their entity that they represent. Remember, please consult an attorney for your specific legal issues.